1968, Sound One opened its doors as a motion picture post-production facility for New York filmmakers. Its beginning ushered in a progressive communal work environment that served to both up-and-coming and established filmmakers of the 1970s and 80s. Elisha Birnbaum, a transplant from the motion picture industry of Israel, founded Sound One after being introduced to the New York film industry by a few key players who had established a solid reputation working with directors like Sidney Lumet, Arthur Penn, Alan Pakula, and William Friedkin. Within a few years, Sound One became a kind of spiritual center for the New York film community, where filmmakers like Woody Allen, Martin Scorsese, Brian De Palma, and Jonathan Demme could count on the tireless dedication from Elisha's team. Told by the staff, clients, and founder, Elisha Birnbaum, this is the story of Sound One, New York, 1968 to 2012. Andy Monchin, that started 1979, Sound One. Jay Rubin, 1979. Dominic Tavella, I was a mixer there. Uh, Tom Fleischman, I'm a recording mixer. David Sound Bolton, one in I started in 1984. Ann freelance co-supervisor. Susan Lazarus, Bobby Johansson, 1989. Rick Shulman, 82. Glenn Payne, supervising sound Dave editor, Patterson, 1992. Jonathan Porath, sound one. Paul Levin, freelance post-production supervisor. The fall of 92. Stuart Stanley, Missy Cohen, 1990, I was an apprentice. Phil Fuller, Martin Chemler, I got there in Peter Riley, 70 Cordero, Michael Berenbaum, picture editor, Novak, 1988, I'm Peter Wagoner, full-time mixer. Frame by Frame is presented by Motion Picture Editors Guild and Post New York Alliance because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org and we can be found on Twitter at, at @postny. The host for this episode is Harbor Picture Company and Decibel 11. New York was very busy. There was a number of directors in the early 70s, late 60s that were making films, Sidney Lumet and Arthur Penn, Woody Allen, to name a few, Mike Nichols. And there was one main place in the 60s called Reeves. And I was a very young man. I got a job as a messenger. Alicia hired me. I dropped out of college. And Alicia hired me at Image Sound in 1970 in the Brill Building. And at that time, Sound One was a separate company where Mel worked down on 45th Street. And, the, you know, we would... We would see each other from time to time, and you know, we would I would go to him, and he would we'd get sound effects from each other and whatnot. And eventually, I left Image Sound before it became Sound One, before the two companies merged, and went to Trans Audio and worked there for nine years. And during that time, Sound One and Image Sound merged together. There was a man named Val Peters who owned Sound One, and Alicia Birnbaum was at Image Sound. And they merged the two companies. It became Sound One, and it all moved into the Brill Building on the eighth floor. I came back there in 1985 after having worked in the transfer room at Transaudio. And in 1979, I started mixing. In fact, Susan was one of the very, very first jobs I ever did. It was a documentary on the Vietnam War called The War at Home. And Susan was, I think, an assistant sound I, editor. No, I was a sound editor, but it was my first sound yeah. editing job. I wound up going back to Sound One in 85 and worked there for 18 years. Uh, the need at the time in New York was for re-recording facilities. Reeves had kind of shut down. They had gone into videotape. 
and they had a small sound operation there, but eventually they moved over to 55th Street. But there was a lot of features in town, so there was a need for directors who didn't want to go to L.A. to mix, who was home, home was New York, Sydney and, and Arthur Penn, George Roy Hill, John Sayles, Spike Lee, Jonathan Demme, Alan Pakula, Ron Howard. All of these directors were East Coast based, and there was a need for a film industry. There had been a film industry for, for many years, but it had grown. Uh, it was still small in comparison to Hollywood, but it had gotten a lot, a lot bigger in the period of the 70s and into the 80s. In the late 70s, early 80s, there was more need for cutting rooms. There was a need for Foley. So in the early days of Sound One, Sound One wasn't known for mixing. We had Mel doing ADR, and we had cutting rooms. We had the seventh floor. Guy Spera, who founded Laumic, he had an editorial company where he rented equipment and supplies and stuff like that. And he merged with Image and Sound One. Bob Schulman was the accountant and the financial guy, and <coughs> Sound One didn't have any money, and he became the president. Back in 1982, 83, um, there was a subsidiary called Sound Mixers. They recorded music, they made records, and in 1982, 83, the record industry, vinyl, was dying. And upstairs was Sound One. It was the same company, it was the Sound Mixers was a subsidiary, and my dad had to make a decision, Sound Mixers was basically gonna close. So that's when I basically started working at Sound One, went upstairs, and I think the liquidation of the assets from Sound Mixers and closing that and, and stopping the bleeding really helped Sound One thrive, and that's when it really became a, more of a serious entity. My dad basically brought Sound One public onto the stock exchange, so there was an infusion of capital. That's when when Image Sound merged with Sound One and, and really went forward. I came to New York as a student, but I was working already as a professional uh, way in Israel to do sound, yes. Uh, my teacher was a, somebody that came from France and he taught me things that were done in France which did not apply to me. I didn't like the French thing. I said, I'm going to find my own way to do those things. And slowly, slowly, I start creating sound and service to the motion picture industry in Israel. But that was too small. It was nothing. I mean, maybe they have one picture a year, maybe two pictures a year. And I could not live from that. So then, I met somebody named Carl Lerner. And after we talked to each other, he told me, there's nothing for you to do here. The best thing, come to New York. I said, I wish so, but how can I come to New York? He said, I'm going back to New York. All my detail, I'm going to bring you to New York. And in New York, I start getting to know the people that are working in the motion picture industry. Carl Lerner and Didi Allen actually were supporting me from the very beginning. Yes. And that's how they introduced me to big part of the people are here that are here. I think that they saw 
that I am fair to everybody. I did not prefer one to the other. And if I had to work, and that happened many times, I'd never finish at six o'clock at night. Never, yes. There was always something that I had either to repair or to prepare for the next day, or even give service because chick, you know, had a problem with Moviola and it, it, it tore the, the mag and he has to deliver that tomorrow morning. So I had to go back to the library, pick up the tape, retransfer that whole thing, give it to him, be sure that everything is all right, and 11 o'clock at night, okay, I can go home, yes? Now, that was unique in New York, that was unique, because if someone will go to another company, because I was not the only company, yes, at six o'clock at night and say, God, you know, you have to help me. You know what they'll say? Fuck you. <laughs> and I never said it. And I did not do it because I want them to love me. Yes. I knew if you have a problem, and many problems can happen to you, whether we work on moviolas at that time that can tell you your sound or picture to shreds, <laughs> and then what you do. Now, I, I'll give you an example of, of how it worked out in, in terms of you know, a client. You know. I, I worked on a film called Honeysuckle Rose, so it, it's got music. So we're cutting the film, and we need to screen the film. So every time we need to screen, we need to meld the, the dialogue and the music tracks. So we were on the seventh floor at Sound One. I could call up and book a room and, and mix. But so I said to Alicia, I said, Alicia, you got to help us out. We want to mix on the cam. We want you to give us a, a recorder with a sync signal so that we can mix in the cutting room. We'll just send the tape up, and you can transfer it and, and, and give us it. So now he's losing money doing that because we're not booking mixing time, okay? That never crosses his mind. If it does, it's never expressed. It's not, my thing was I needed to do it this way. Yes, we'll make it happen. Same movie, couple of months later, we're supposed to mix at Transaudio. You know, the, the mix has been booked for months. I get a call from Jack Forsick. You know, I quoted you the wrong rate. It's a stereo film. We have to charge $100 more an hour. This is the difference between what kind of company Alicia ran and what kind of company other people ran, you know? On one hand, it was a great company. It was our playground. Every, it made everything work. The other side of that coin is that We'd be in the middle of a Foley session in the early days. Somebody would run in and say, Alicia, we just got a call. They're going to turn the phone off unless you pay the bill, you know, cash today. Th those things happened, which means that wasn't Alicia's focus. And because it wasn't his focus, Sound One was incorporated as a public company. There was stock. And eventually that's what took it downhill because of all the pressures from people who, were, who didn't have his values, people who got involved through Todd A.O., through that company that took over after Todd A.O., and eventually Discovery, who didn't care what 
you know, what, what was happening there. They only looked at the bottom line. San Juan started, when, when he started with, with at Biro, you know, after it became Image, uh, he had a little uh, narration booth, you know, the kind that had that, like, the door was like to a freezer. <laughs> right, right. I don't remember what year it was, but it was early. I, I was the supervising senator on, on the foreign <coughs> version of Z. And there's a lot of running in that movie. And uh, I had a foley all the running. And so I went in this booth, which was, you know, four by four. I spent a week in that booth. And I came out and I said, I'm never going to do this ever again. <laughs> and, and then the next thing, he built a studio. And, and that's how it went, you know. I think the crux of, of what made Sound One special was that, you know, the, the, the word enabler has, has a bad connotation, you know, but Alicia was, in the best sense, an enabler. If you needed something, he made it happen. We can do it, you know. Money was not the consideration. It, it never was, well, how much, you know, what are you going to, well, what's the hourly rate? It, that never came into the equation. And we brought our sound effects there as sound editors. It all started out as a collaborative thing. Yeah, give me a transfer of my sound. Yes, you can steal them, you can take whatever. Didn't matter, because we knew we, we'd get it back. It was back and forth. And that was taken to another level by Billy Nisselson, who made it all kind of happen. You know, he became the, the, the one to facilitate. Right. You, you didn't have to have a, any money. You know, you just had a need, and they made it work. Because it worked on both ends. If you came in and you needed a mix, and you really didn't have the budget for a mix, that was an opportunity to sound one, to have one of their newer guys who was just becoming a mixer mix. Mel Zelnicker was not a mixer that anybody really knew about until he mixed Blood Simple. So when the Cohen brothers showed up and they, and they wanted, you know, who were the Cohen brothers at Blood Simple? Nobody knew who the Cohen brothers were. But Billy made that happen. He said, yes, we'll take care of you. That's the same gestalt that Alicia had. Yes, we'll take care of you. Money was after the fact. After Blood Simple, then Mel was a mixer, you know, with a resume. You know, before that, he was an ADR editor with a recordist, you know, with a resume. But that made him a mixer. So they could say, well, you can mix with Mel, you know. I mixed with Mel in 1980 on The Exterminator. Oh. And, and that was the first uh, studio on the eighth floor that became a stereo theater. I remember Mel, sick as a dog, mixing away with a pail right next to him. <laughs> you remember that, Mel? Oh, yes. <laughs> that was oh, yes. funny, boy, I'll tell you. That was dedication if I ever saw. One of the things that Sound One did, Image Sound Sound One did, is it gave people a chance. Uh, you look at the roster of mixers that came out of Sound One, Peter Wagner, Riley Steele, uh, guys who started off as messengers, package schleppers, who, uh, who've made their way into the business and done well. And it's only because Alicia created those opportunities for people to join the business. It used to be a very closed society. And Alicia's, one of the, Alicia's the reason why so many great people came out of New York. When I first started working there, you know, he, uh, I was a young guy, okay? And I also played in a band. <laughs> and he fired me at least two, three times, and I quit two or three times. 
because basically I was in a band and on a Tuesday night I wanted to play at CBGB's and you couldn't get out of there till like, you know, four or five in the morning and you had to be at work the next day. And so I'd come in late and he'd be like really mad and he would yell at me, go like, bit, what do you want to be? Rock and roll star or engineer? You have to make a choice. You know, he'd yell at me like, but, you know, at the same time, the company was growing and there were, he didn't have all the resources he, he needed to really make it go 100%. It was all of us young people and me being one of them that was willing to come back and, you know, work and try. And I think I'm mechanically inclined. So he taught me all the things behind the dubbers, you know, and how to fix them and uh, how to fix the transfer machines when they were breaking. And, and so it finally got to a point where he uh, was able to go on vacation and I could sort of make sure, not completely, but sort of make sure if things broke down, I could take care of it. And make it, you know, fix it most of the time. He'd be gone for a few days or something like that. My first exposure to Sound One was when I actually, I don't know if most people know this, but on the second floor of the Brill Building was a music recording studio. Sound mixers. Sound mixers. Mixers. Yeah. And apparently, I mean, Sound One put up the money for that, yeah. right? right? And um, I think the first thing I was involved with was um, One Trick Pony and the Paul Simon job. But I mean, I didn't know what stems were. I thought those were the things you threw away before you rolled a joint, you know what I mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did I know? You know? Uh, and so that was kind of how I got introduced to Alicia. I met him again in high heels with sweatpants. And... I grew up in the business. My father had a place, film sounds. And one of the first people I knew was Dan Sable, and I was just a little kid because his wife and my mother were ballet dancers together. And that's how Dan got in the business with my father and Michel Moise and Jess Sarasi. So these were all my friends when I was growing up. And then all of a sudden I had a baby. I'm back in New York. I had had some jobs at Kaleidoscope Films, cutting trailers. I think Tommy mixed the, his first mix with me. And then all of a sudden it was like, I was getting jobs at Sound One not through Sound One, but at Sound One. On the seventh floor, I did all the uh, Lifeline series, and I would go from one editor to another every two weeks to another. I got to learn everybody. And uh, to me, it was like a big, giant dorm. <laughs> you could just go there, and you could find Bob Brady and party with him, or you could find a girl and fall in love with her, or blah, 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 you know, it's, and it was, Family, and you say family as, as the guts, but it was also family at the clients, you know? And it, it took me a long time to realize that I had kind of grown up and all you guys were my friends. And these were the people I considered my best friends because I really didn't grow up with anybody else, okay? Um, so... You know, I, I would bring equipment in, and Avi and Bob would help me try and figure it out. And I think I had the first, you know, well, Dan Sable had the first digital thing, and then I had another one, and then we, we tried to put them into the rooms and get them working together. And we were trying, on The Last Temptation of Christ, we were trying to interface 24-track machines, and they'd just go running like crazy, and they'd go crazy this way and that way. And, but it was family. From my perspective, a seminal moment with Sound One was when Lee Dichter decided to come and mix there. And the story behind it was that he was, actually, 
in 79, I worked on this tiny little kids show and we took it over to Photomag where Lee was mixing. And he, it was amazing what he did with these 16 millimeter tracks. And I was just really astounded. I was an apprentice then. And I started working with Sidney Lamette a couple of years later. Uh, we were working on The Verdict. And um, Sidney wanted to mix it in New York, but Photomag was booked up. There was no, you know, he couldn't get in with Dick. And he was going to take it to London to mix it. Yeah. And, and so I said to him, Sydney, I know this is crazy, but the best mixer I've ever heard of, this is like 22, <laughs> I've ever heard, was this guy, Lee Dichter. And Lee had just mixed The Senator. And uh, is that Arthur Penn? Was it? Uh, uh, no, it was Schatzberg. Schatzberg. Yeah, and so Sidney called Schatzberg. Changed the name to Seduction of Joe Tynan. Yeah, The Seduction of Joe Tynan is what it came out as. And Sidney called him up and he said, What's, how's this Lee guy? And he said, he's amazing. So Sidney took, uh, you know, the verdict over to Photomag and just loved what Lee did. And a year later, Lee was leaving Photomag, and there was a rumor that he was gonna go over to Transaudio, which the fundamental difference at, at those days was that Sound One really was kind of endorsed the grassroots filmmaking, the small time, kids coming out of school, Alicia would give them rooms, give them equipment, let them mix stuff. He really was building a base, and I think it's the reason why we're all here today is because of that attitude. Mm -hmm. And a number of people, including myself and Mark, and called up Lee and said, don't go to Transaudio, go to Sound One, that's where it is. And he came there, and it immediately elevated the mix facility. It became, you know, automatically, you know, one of the top two places in New York at the time. It and was one of the best decisions in my life. <laughs> it really was. It, cha it changed my life, because I had left the family business and I, knew, I found a new family. And we all started growing together, you know, it was just, it was wonderful. And my dream was always to work under Dick, because he was the guy. He was did all the New York stuff. And I think Sound One was just coming up into the mixing. They only had like one room on the eighth floor at that time. And my dream was to go to Dick and like be, you know, work over there and also Tommy was there at the time mm -hmm. I figured with the three of us and we could like you know do great things and I had a film starting the next week and it was uh, Bob Fosse's film Star 80 so I go over there and I was there for like three days and I was with Jack and he said listen uh, the studio is busy now because you're gonna have to work at night start working at, at, at six, seven o'clock at night till three in the morning oh. for five weeks and oh. I said no 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 it's not gonna happen so it turned out that he insisted on that, and I said, I, uh, I felt like I was still working for my father. I wound up doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you worked that night, yeah. So what happened was, uh, through, through my friends, through, through, through Chick and Mark, and Oles, uh, that we set up an appointment with Alicia and Jeremy Koch. It was on the street. So, you know, mm. But it turns out that they were saying, this, you really want to be a sound. This is a family business. This is a company. This is a great place to be. And that's what happened from my point of view, that I, I started working over there. I put the film over and, and we worked up on the, on the eighth floor. And then uh, you can finish it from your angle. Well, just let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, Lee was a, a renowned documentary mixer. His father was a recordist in Yiddish films in Fort Lee, okay? Uh, his father built this company, which was a powerhouse of commercial and, and industrial mixing. It was in the MPO building. Uh, his, his 
younger brother worked there un until his tragic death. His sister worked there. His aunt worked there. You have no idea what it, you know, what a civil work, what a cocoon, what a family n nurturing place it was. So Lee was struggling with leaving his father's business, and finally he made a decision to do that. Right. And one day I get a call from, from Lee, it's in the evening. He's pissed and he's upset. And he says, I was going to a meeting with, with Jack Forsick to, to meet Bob Fosse. We're going up in the elevator and Jack says to me, okay, in this meeting, you keep your mouth shut, I'll do all the talking. I said, Lee, what are you doing? That's the way they are. That's old school, that's, that's Jack, you know. I said, where are you? I said, let me call Alicia, stay where you are. Call Alicia, gets in a cab, we go over there, and they got together, the rest yeah, of the sisters. Yeah, the rest of them, yeah. And Tommy came a year later, right? Year yeah. Later. yeah. <clears throat> well, I had been working at Transaudio with Dick Vorsek when that all happened, and I was kind of like off on the side watching the machinations that were going on. And it was really kind of Shakespearean. There was Jack Voracek, who was sort of like the evil twin of Dick Voracek, who was, who was like the nicest guy. And Jack was like this, you know, sort of Scrooge-like, you know. And I, I remember hearing a story. I think my mother told me this story. There was a producer named Kenny Utt. And and I think I think uh, he he told my mom that he that you went to lunch that uh, Lee and, and he went to lunch and and he was one of the people that talked to you about going not going to Trans Audio, and Jack Voracek was certain that he had you in the bag, and he he was like he came in one day and he you know he was literally like rubbing his hands together like we're gonna get all the business we're gonna get all the business, and then it didn't happen. And that was kind of like the beginning of the end of Transaudio. Transaudio just took really after Reds. During Reds, the whole place had been booked up. All the cutting rooms were gone. You know, nobody could get into mix. Floors. Nobody could get in to to edit. And Reds really sort of like monopolized the studio for like a year and a half. Nobody else could get in there. All the other clients, Arthur Penn, Sidney Lumet. Help went, me, help me. went over and because they couldn't get in to get Dick and Dick and I were busy with Reds, they went to Lee and then they never really came back because it, it was after, after Reds, Transaudio started really sinking. I remember sitting there at Transaudio for weeks and weeks at a time with nothing to do. I had this K-Pro computer and I would, come, I would bring it in with me and, and you know, learn Turbo Pascal. Because you know, I had nothing else to do, you know? And that was in 82. That was kind of like the beginning of the end for me. I lasted another couple of years there, but I had to leave because there was, you know, it just wasn't enough work and everyone seemed to be going to Sound One. Sound One was up and coming and Dick was getting older and, you know, his clients had sort of dried up. And by 85, I was just fed up with it. And Alicia called me up and took me out to lunch and said, you got to come back. I'll build you a room, he said. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I said, okay, I'm ready to get out of there. So I left, and it was the best decision I ever made, too. Well, while he and Dick were mixing reds over at Transaudio, uh, we were on hold for ADR every night of the week, seven days a week. And who was the guy? It was me. The very, very first night that Warren Beatty walked into the room, he stepped up to the microphone 
and and he as he stepped up to the microphone, the floor squeaked, and <laughs> Alicia was standing there. And BD turns around and says, "I can't work with that squeak." And Alicia jumped in. Took him about fifteen minutes to pick up the carpet and start pounding nail after nail after nail into the floor until the floor was quiet. And that's just typical of the way Alicia tackled the job. If something had to be done, he did it, including changing fuses with his bare hands and also resetting the sink motors with a big screwdriver. The uh, yeah. the motors yeah. that were under the Studio B projection plant, and he would reach in there with this long screwdriver. And over the years, it got shorter and shorter and shorter <laughs> as the electricity burned off more of it. Things like that, the pressure was that I was serving so many people at the same time. One of the things, though, that happened because of that, you yeah. were getting very busy. The editing rooms, Mark and Lou and Todd, Cassow, myself, we started to bring in our own dubbers and do our own transfers, specifically for our movies, yeah. to take the uh, pressure off of the transfer rooms upstairs on the eighth floor. Yeah. And that's, that became a common thing, yeah. and, and it helped. And I just want to go back to like how, how Bill Nicholson started. You know, this, this room is a very professional-looking uh, studio. In the beginning, Sound One never, ever looked this professional, you know, <laughs> and it was very, very frustrating as a client, you know. Uh, you, you could order something and maybe you'd get it and maybe, you, you know, you'd have to wait. There it was, it was, it was a lot of chaos, you know. And Billy was a friend of mine from high school. He... He came out of he quit college. He worked at the New York Times. Then he went to work at a schmata place. He was an expediter at a, at a place in the in, in the garment center. You know, they call up. They need a bolt, a rayon, and he'd he'd make it work. So one day I said to him, I said, "Why don't you come work at Sound One?" He says, "What do, what do I know about the film business?" I said, "It's an expediting job. They need somebody to just make make things flow to get it to work." I said. You expedite in the in the garment center. You do the same thing. You'll learn what you, you have to know. You know, six months you'll know it. So they met me, and he came to work at at, at Sound One. You know, but it wasn't. It, it was a struggle for a while, for a long time. You know, for Sound One to have a kind of professional patina. Becoming Sound One helped. It wasn't really till Jeremy was there, till 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 Mel. At at some point, you know, Mel must have been going crazy. But at some point, he just decided we gotta we gotta get a system, an organizational system. So he, you know, he w he went and figured out how to barcode everything and things that we took for granted on the West Coast, not in New York. I mean, New York was in general just you know a wing it city, you know, but but. Things are, tend to be more organized in, in, this, in the studios, you know. I'll give you an example of just from the things we worked on, like a moviola, you know. We used to rent moviolas at, at the, in the screen building at 1600 from a place called Preview Theater. They went out of business, and, and uh, Universal bought all their moviolas. And sometime in the early 80s, I went out to cut a, to cut a, uh, a pilot in, in L.A., and I look and I, I see, oh, the moviola I'm working on at Universal is the preview theater moviola. Well, in New York, the, the moviola repairman would be in my editing room 
if not daily, every other day. I mean, it was an ongoing frustration, you know? I'm cutting this pilot on a preview theater movieola like four weeks. Finally, I need somebody. I, when a guy came in to fix my movieola, I said, let me ask you something. I said, I get the same equipment in New York, and I've got a repairman like two, three times a week. I said, what's going on? How come when they come out here, all of a sudden they're working well? He said, you wouldn't believe what, what we see inside when we open up these machines. He said, instead of a cotter pin, there's a nail. He said, they just winged it in New York. Well, that's kind of like what went on, at, you know, in general, you know. You say Alicia came in with a hammer and fixed it. There were always tools all over the place, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'll, t I'll tell you a great thing that happened one day. Uh, it's before all the studios were built when Frank Cadden, and Frank Cadden was the oldest employee, you know. I don't know. Did he come through Didi? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was he was uh, related to Ronnie Roos. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Related? There used to be this long room that Frank worked in. Uh -huh. um, it was the, uh, really an old hallway between other rooms, and you'd sit in that room and you'd tell him what what you needed, and he'd go in the next room and find the tape and bring it back. And there were always tools around there. So Lou Severino, a, a great sound editor. And, and myself, we're picking out sound effects. And Maurice Shell, another sound editor, walks in. And Maurice is wearing sneakers with no socks and, and Bermuda shorts. And Louie picks up a screwdriver on one hand and, a, and an electric drill in the other, and he jabs it into Maurice's foot as he turns on the electric drill. Well, if you know Maurice, you, the blood drained from his face. You know? But this was San Juan. There were always tools all over the place. There were always wires all over the place, you know? And I thought to myself, well, you know, this is New York City. It's not the way, you know, they don't do this on the West Coast until I worked on a film once where I had to go get the, the Dolby Master made, you know. So I go to this place in Burbank and it's in somebody's garage, and there it is. It's Sound One West, you know. I mean, there were wires all over the place. I couldn't believe it. This, you know, this pantheon of technological, you know, terrificness. There was only one place in New York that was pristine, and that's what that's where Dick came from. That was Reeves. Reeves was was run by a German engineer. They made their own split reels. I mean, with 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 a lathe. They, you know, it was. But we had no places like that. Eventually, after all these guys were there, San Juan became a professional, you and know. And when we were putting in, they were putting in that first stereo room, I actually came in as an outside wirer just to get the job done quickly. And we were hired by Audio Techniques was putting it in. They were doing the job. And so I came in just as a hired hand to put it in. And it kind of, it was me and Greg Hanks and a couple of other guys coming in. And you know, we were putting in the 15, 16, 17 hour days to knock it out mm -hmm. as quick as possible because it was a, Greg was still learning what film mixing was about as we were building this console. Mel, you were there constantly saying, oh no, no, it doesn't work like that, it works like that. And Greg would have to go <laughs> back the next day and no, wire it this way. And after a couple of hectic weeks of doing that, job's winding down and Alicia takes me aside and says, so what are you doing you know, next week? I said, 
I guess I'm going back to, you know, Connecticut and continue my life as a sound man for a rock band. So he says, why don't, why don't you work here as a tech? And I said, well, I don't really consider myself a tech. And he puts his hand around me and says, you're a tech. <laughs> no, no question about, you know, what I did. You're a tech. You've got the ability in you to be a tech. And he just saw right through it. And although he said he would never take a person off the street, you know, that wasn't qualified, I guess he saw in me something that I didn't see in myself, that I could, you know, had that ability. And I said, well, oh, okay. I needed the work anyway. So, you know, we came in and, and right around then, when that, when that room went in, I think that's when a lot of business really started coming in. I know Alicia had faith in it that he had to like, push away the tech work a bit. He couldn't, he was busy doing Foley's. He was busy getting the company more stable. And, um, you know, that B room took off. And a year later, we built the C room. And a year later, we built the room for Lee. And a year later, we built the room for Tommy. And, you know, then two years later, we took over the whole second floor and built three more rooms in there. And, you know, yeah, that, those five years of growth. Yeah. By, by the time we ended with that, we started rebuilding every room all over again. It was just an astonishing <laughs> level but, of but growth. That actually was the fame of Sound One because we were unique in the motion picture business where everybody is competing with somebody else and he would like to see the other side fail, yes? So they would say, in, at some one, there was never like that. Everybody helped each other. Everybody want everybody to succeed. Former Sound One president Jeremy Koch architected the financing and expansion of Sound One from its humble beginnings into a top-tier New York post-production facility. Though he was unavailable at the time of recording, the following is an excerpt from a letter he wrote offering a brief overview of his experiences. When I came to Sound One in late 1980, it had 15 employees, one part-time receptionist, one rickety Foley studio, and a pigeon-wired, very small, combo ADR mix room still under construction. The staff included Bill N., J.R., Dom C., Frank C., Mel, Denny, Alicia, Guy, Irwin, Chuck, two messengers, two bookkeepers, a porter, and was, as I was told by bankers and outside accountants, not savable, bankrupt, 300%, and so it went. In a sense, Sound One should have never happened. It was unlike any other facility I've ever seen in this or any other country. All the others were in fact run only as businesses, and as I frequently witnessed, often once the facilities became successful, they became haughty and greedy. While others were money-backed venues of the studios, they too, over time, behaved like bureaucrats of some bulbous government. Sound One pretty much broke all the rules of that game. How it succeeded, was even allowed to succeed, is the storyline. Lots of heart, soul, necessity, talent, savvy, spiced with some perverse doses of cleverness, coalescing at a certain moment in the New York film timeline. Magical. Sound One is really a story to be told, for it came to personify an entire very talented community coming together around, indeed creating, the Sound One locus with such positive energy and talent at a time when the New York film community was telling the country, hey, this is what commercial film artistry should demonstratively be. Consummate, skilled, meaningful, deep, fun, and yes, marketable. 
The voices in the beginning episode include Foley artist and Sound One founder Alicia Birnbaum, Chief Technical Engineer Dom Costanzo, Sound Mix Technician Bob Troller, Technical Engineer Rick Schulman, Former Sound One Facilities Manager Jay Rubin, Sound Editors Mark Laub and Chick Ciccolini, Music Editor Todd Cassa, Post-Production Supervisor Susan Lazarus, Picture Editor Andy Monchin, and Re-Recording Mixers Mel Zelnicker, Tom Fleischman, Lee Dichter, and Peter Wagoner. Music by the Sound One All-Stars. The era of New York's Sound One podcast series is co-produced by Sherry Johansson and Isabel Sederni. The sound engineers for this session were Bobby Johansson, Peter Wagoner, and Mike Rivera. In New York, this is Frame by Frame.